Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll pick up where we left off last week. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll read and we'll study together verses 1 through 23. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of the Lord our God. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahituf, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sineh. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, they killed about twenty men within it, or within, as it were, a, furrow, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, and in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul at Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was 
talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews had been, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard uh, that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Lord in heaven, we give you thanks for the history of the kindness that you extend to your people. O Lord, that you remain in control of all things. O Lord, that your heart is for your people and that you are pleased to save us from our iniquities and from our enemies, O Father in heaven. We ask that you would give us an understanding of your kindness, O Lord. Help us to be a people strengthened in faith by the example of the brothers that have gone before us. O Lord, help us to see you in the greatness of your power as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we met, we read the account in chapter 13 of Saul's pridefulness and the terrible price that he paid for it. Specifically, we read about how Jonathan, his son, defeated a garrison of Philistines that were located at Geba, you know, that town that we just read about. And what happened after that? Well, Saul, being who he is, began to boast to the people of Israel. And he told all the people, Saul has defeated the Philistines at Geba. Now, we don't need to go into the idea of is he stealing glory from his son? That's not really a thing of substance. But what is, is that he had the intention of raising an army against the Philistines that he had not properly planned for, nor had he even given a consideration to whether or not he could reasonably defeat his enemies. But the biggest issue is that he hadn't sought the Lord. What we're told in chapter 13 is that when he told all the Israelites, come and fight and raise an army against these Philistines, that the Philistines also heard it and that they gathered their own people. And we're told that the number of people that they gathered was absolutely impressive. Possibly 30,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen. And as the passage of chapter 13 says, more infantrymen on foot than could be numbered the grains of sand on a seashore. Now that's impressive. And whenever the people of Israel began to see this great force, what did they do? Well, they were terrified and they ran and they hid themselves in holes in the ground and caves. Some of them went across the river and As we read this evening, even some of them turned to their enemies and took up camp with the Philistines. Well, if that force is coming against us, it would be better to fight for the winning team. That's their philosophy, and that is their thought. Well, Saul, being taken off guard by this terrible force, realized he had not sought the Lord. And so he took the people of Israel and they went to Gilgal, this place where the people of Israel sought the favor in the direction of the Lord. 
And it's told that he waited for seven days and waited for Samuel to come and to intercede between the people of Israel and the Lord and for the Lord to give direction. Should we go into war? You see, things are out of order. Shouldn't that have been the first thing that he had done? But now he's done it in a reverse order. Saul has tried to do things by his own will and his own power and his own self-assurance. And what we're told is that after seven days, not into the eighth day, that Saul took matters into his own hands and that he sacrificed to the Lord and did the work as a king that only belongs to the priest and how this was offensive to God and it caused a curse to be brought upon him that the Lord would cut off his household and raise up another king, one who was a man after the heart of God, concerned with what pleases the Lord rather than his own wisdom. And that it came to be that whenever Saul left, that what was once an army of 3,000 Israelites had diminished to 600 men, whom he has now led, as we just read, back up against the wall to hide in the pomegranate cave, whatever that is, to hide in a pomegranate cave in the fear of this great multitude that would overwhelm them, conquer them, and kill the people of Israel. But there's another man, isn't there? There's Jonathan, his son, who's a bit of a rogue. And this is the story of his faith in God and how his faith in the sovereignty of God drove him to faith-reliant action. And so the two points I want us to see from the passage, the first of them, I want us to see faith and action. Faith and action. And then secondly, I want us to see the sovereign means of God. The sovereign means of God. So when we come to verse 1 of chapter 14, Jonathan hatches this secret plan. And he turns to this young man. We're not even told who he is. He's just a young man who's his armor bearer. It never assigns a name to him. It's sort of sad. If you're thinking of any biblical character that you would like to be, a brave one who was a great warrior would be, well, probably at the top of the list. But he's just the armor bearer of the man Jonathan. And he turns to him and he tells him simply this, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Now, If I'm the armor bearer, a young man, and I know that there are two of us with barely an army of 600 and that there are 37,000 people plus on the other side. Depending on what sort of young man I am, I would either think, yay, great, let's go, or are you insane? Right? But that's not the answer at all that he gets. Instead, we're told that the plan progresses and that Jonathan and this young man, they actually leave and take onto the course without the full plan even being put before him. They are, as we would say in English, intrepid. They're full of assurance, quite brave and maybe a little bit reckless. We read in verse 2 that this did not get told, or sorry, the end of verse 1, that this did not get told to Saul. In fact, we're told that Saul is at this specific place, he's in the outskirts of Gibeah, and he's at this pomegranate cave. And uh, Lots of commentators have tried to understand what is the pomegranate cave, and the best that people can sort of guess is it's a cave where there was a pomegranate tree. Some say, oh, well, it's shaped like a pomegranate, and they found a cave that's shaped like a pomegranate. But for me, a 
pomegranate shaped kind of round, and most entrances to caves are kind of round. So there are many of different caves that could be pomegranate caves. So I would encourage you, don't get too deep in the rut of trying to figure out why it's called the pomegranate cave. This is a historical uh, detail that would have been obvious and known. It was a place where people knew it in the ancient world. And so that's why it's told. It's a historical detail of narrative. And you go on and you read that there is Saul. There's 600 people and he's got uh, this man, Ahijah, this priest of the Lord there with him. He's clothed in an ephod and he's actively doing the work of his priestly duty in the care of the people of Israel. We come to verse 4 and we read about their pathway. And what it tells us is that within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag. And I think that's even a phrase in English that most people don't use. A rocky crag means kind of a rugged mountainous uh, place. And the picture is you've kind of got this, this valley, this ravine where it kind of comes to a deep V and on one side you've got this kind of high place. It's kind of stone. Barren kind of place almost. And on one side you've got this, this crag, this sort of mountain rise and uh, it's named Bozes or Tushine. Makes perfect sense. If a mountain's called Tushine it probably catches either the evening or the morning sun. That could be the case, maybe not. Maybe it's just glittery looking rock. It doesn't matter. But again, here is a historical detail that describes specifically where he goes. And then on the opposite side, there's another rocky crag, this mountainous rise, and it has a name too, and it's named Sena. And Sena, um, depending on how we try to understand it, uh, simply means just a rise or a high place. Well, it's very important because we're told that on one side, on the north side, uh, there is this area called Michmash. And you may remember from chapter 13, the last verse, we're told that that's where the Philistines encamped. This great, big multitude. And then on the opposite side, toward the south, there is Geba. And you may remember that that's where Jonathan overwhelmed the Philistines. And that that's also very close to where the army of Saul were encamped within uh, the territory of Benjamin. It's in verse 6 that the plan is hatched. And whenever I was studying this, I just had to think, you know, they're already there. and They're, they're sort of between the enemies. They can look down on them. And, and then the people of Israel who are, well, maybe not paying so much attention. They haven't even noticed that the captain of the guard, the son of Saul and the armor bearer that they've left, they probably did it secretly and without trying to draw attention uh, to themselves. But here are these two young men, and, and they're in the midst, as it were, of the people of God and the enemies of the people of God, and they are boldly going into something, well, that could easily be a, a valley of the shadow of death. I mean... At a high point, what sort of warriors would have been the defense? Rock throwers and archers and javelin throwers. They could have rained down torment and death on these guys. But they're brave. That's an incredible thing. They're incredibly brave whenever they go toward the Philistine camp. But they also sound a little bit crazy. 
if not for faith. Verse 6, we read this wonderful statement of faith, and it says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, and that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And this is a wonderful statement. It really is. I mean, if you read it, you may want to take some time. Because you could read it that he's saying, it may be that the Lord will work for us, or maybe not. And I don't think that's the right way to read this. That would then put him in the place of doubt, where he's simply saying, maybe God's going to do something, maybe he won't. Because I think the second part of the verse of Scripture, here in verse 6, gives us the understanding that he is not saying the Lord may not work for them, but rather it is faith and the freedom of the sovereign God that he believes God will work, that God will help them, and he can do it however he wants by sending an army or just two little Israelite men. That's what it reads to be for me. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And one of the things that I want you to see is that his faith restricts him from telling God how to work. Now that's really, really different than what we often do, isn't it? Oftentimes, we find ourselves in hard situations, probably not between an army of 37,000 and the people of God in a ravine, but in a hard situation, whatever it is, some kind of thing at work, or maybe with the family, or maybe we want direction, maybe it's work, or or a move, or something to do, or how to deal with finances. And we, we pray, and oftentimes we tell the Lord what to do. Lord, I want you to give me that new job so I can go to that place, which would be really good for my family. Lord, I want you to make my child this, that, or the other, to make my child excellent at this career, or that topic, or this sport, because that will be good for them. I want... This sort of job, it will be the best one for me. I want this sort of house, the best for our family. And we dictate to God what God ought to do. That's not what he does at all. Instead, he's simply saying, I believe that my God is powerful, that he can do whatever he wants, and I believe that he loves us and that he will do it. And you see, it's this faith in God that allows him to act. Okay? And this is the first that we've actually seen him mention this. It's verse 6. We're all the way down from the beginning. And they're on the pathway. This has been in the heart and the mind of Jonathan. And nothing has been said until you come to verse 6. And there he tells the young man. And I just think it's wonderful faith in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. And maybe it's a thing that we ought to take and be a little bit amazed at. I mean, how many of us would walk against those sort of odds? Two versus 37,000 and more in an army. Because we believe that God can and loves us, so he will help us. I mean, the faith here is enormous. His faith is larger than the armies of the Philistines. It's as large as the power of the God of heaven, and that's how he can act. I love in verse 7 the response of this young man, the armor bearer. Look at it with me. He says to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. 
Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now that's really impressive. Because it shows us the effect of the faith of believers, even on people, who may themselves not have that strength of faith. He doesn't say, yes, Jonathan, I feel the same way. Our God is that strong and we can do anything with him. No, he he really points toward the faith of Jonathan. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish, he says, brother, I'm ready to follow you. He's inspired by the faith of this man. And it has an incredible impact on the willingness of other people to just simply follow because of the faith of the person in front of them. Doesn't this have a testimony to us? How do you, Christian, deal with hard circumstances? Do you do it like an unbeliever and panic and completely lose it and melt down? Or do you pray to the Lord and stand firm? Act like you believe in God, that your God loves you, and that He's promised to do you good. The faith of believers has a huge testimony to possibly an unbeliever and certainly a person that at least doesn't completely see the full picture. And so, friends, I just want to tell you, don't discount the testimony of Christian faith in a sovereign God. And I love that last portion. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. They are bonded at the deepest, most essential point. I'll go into the very grips of death with you. If you die, I die. That's the sort of feeling that you get from the verse of Scripture. Jonathan's response is very simple. Verse 8, he says, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. Now just think of it, he's saying, we're going to go to the enemies that we're going to attack and we're just, we snuck away from the Israelites, but we're going to walk right through the front gate. Here we are. And I think of people, you know, broken down on the Audubon with the orange vest on, the yellow vest, you know, so everyone can see. That's kind of the picture. We're not going to go sneaking around. No, we're going to go right to them because we believe in the Lord so much that whatever they think to do to us, The Lord is holding us in His hands. Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. Verse 9, If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. You see, there's some sense there where, you know, he's thinking about it. If these guys come down to us, you know, they're, they're coming possibly with some intent. And, you know, he's not suicidal. He doesn't want harm to come to him. Or to this young man with him? No. He's a working mind. He has a fear of death. like Most rational beings do. He says, if they come after us, we're going to stay. And we'll deal with that if it comes. You see, he still doesn't have a discernment of exactly what the Lord is going to do. But he believes the Lord's going to sustain them. And he goes on. And in verse 10 he says, But if they say, come up to us... Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. If you know anything at all, if you've ever watched a movie about historical battles or even Star Wars, you know that someone that has the high ground has an advantage. And the depiction of this is, and as we're going to see in a few seconds, it's 
not only that the Philistines are kind of on high ground, kind of on a hill, but that to get to them is going to require these men on hands and feet to climb. How much fighting can you do whenever you're scaling a wall? Not much. What does the person at the top of the ladder have to do? Not much. One boulder, boom, you're dead. One stab with the sword as you come up, boom, you're dead. It's not an easy thing. Uh, this is, well, it's sort of like siege warfare. Why don't you cross over the wall? Well, it's a very dangerous and perilous thing. And so it's almost a confusing thing that Jonathan would prefer to go up. But that's exactly what he thinks. And you see, it's going up into the Philistine camp on invitation. And it reveals what Jonathan expects, that they're going to look at these two men and they're also going to think, there are 37,000 and more of us. These guys are no danger at all. Come on up, we're going to show you a thing. Now We can take that as a threat. We can take it as them mocking them. They do mock them. You look at verse 11. Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. But I just want to show you again the testimony of faith. He trusts in his God. He trusts in his God, and so he acts. So many people today, whenever they think about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, they say, if God is sovereign, he will move me. Uh, kind of like this divine chess player, and I'm his pawn, he's going to pick me up, and he will move me to the next square if he should want me to do something. Right? If God wants uh, this or that to happen, He will bring it about. Well, the sovereignty of God ought to be the assurance for the Christian. Not to say, God, move me, but rather, in faith, to simply teach to us that if my God is sovereign, I can move and act knowing that He is over all of these things. And that I not only have a responsibility to act, but I have an assurance in my action that if I act, my God has not been passive. He's not on the sideline. He's not distant. Rather, He's with me. And so it strengthens the acts of people who have faith. It strengthened the act of Jonathan and the armor bearer. It is because his God is sovereign that he can climb that mountain on hand and foot with his armor bearer behind him and face an insurmountable enemy because he has an all-powerful, almighty God who commands an army. That's why he can do it. And friends, the same is for us. You know, I think of a, a story uh, about John Wesley, and uh, I believe it was uh, George Whitfield who were evangelizing, and you may know these two names, these great men of uh, the Church of God uh, that, was, that were blessed to minister in England. And, and they're out and they're evangelizing. Both of these men are evangelical Methodist. But Wesley is an Arminian, and he believes in the free will of man and the strength of man, and that the Lord basically leaves man to do what man wants to do. And and then George Whitfield believes in the sovereignty of his God, and he's reformed, and he believes in the power of his God. And as they were out all day, these two men, colleagues and friends, they shared the gospel. And they came back, sharing a room, and they prayed, and were on their knees, and there's Wesley. And he is belaboring before the Lord, 
All the people, all the names, all the things that were said and seen and done. And he's pleading with the Lord. Oh, Lord, please, oh, Lord, help me not to mess it up. We didn't see any conversions. Oh, Lord, please help. Please help. And he's crying out to the Lord in prayer and persistent prayer is good and ought to be done. And then over his shoulder, Wesley hears the snoring of a sleeping man. And there's Whitfield. And he's not on his knees. He's in his bed under his blanket. He's asleep. And Wesley says, how dare you? Don't you believe in God? How could you be asleep? Why ought you not be praying? And he says, it is because I believe in the sovereignty of God that now I can sleep. That he believes his God would answer the prayer and bless the work, whether he pleaded all night or whether he was obedient and took rest because of the power of his God. Well, isn't there some testimony to us there? Faith in the power of God ought to drive us to vigorous evangelism and ought to assure us that he will do what he will do for his people because he is faithful and so we can rest in him. When we go on in verses 11 through 23, we see the sovereign means of God. The sovereign means of God. Means is an English word that just means the way the Lord does something or the method, the sovereign methods of God if you want. And so we we read in in verse 11 uh, that they do go about this plan and both of the men showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And so they mock them. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, waving to them, and to his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Now that would generally make someone a little bit nervous. What does that mean? What do you want to show me? Uh, you want to beat me up? You want to kill me? And then Jonathan, what does he do in response to the invitation from these men? He says to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. He says, this is what we were waiting for. This is what we were expecting. Now you may ask, well, how did he know that might happen? Why why were those the two options? I have no idea. Uh, The only thing I can say is maybe he hoped it. I mean, these are two opposite options, really. It's two possible options. But I know this, that when he knew the Lord answered that and gave him that sign, he was ready to go with full courage into the face of his enemies. Well, we go on and we read. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. That means they were killed. Uh, And his armor bearer killed them after him. Uh, One commentator reads this, and I think he kind of takes it too far. It's like he thinks Jonathan comes in and he's like a rugby or an American football player. He's just tackling people, so they fall to the ground. And here's Jonathan just exterminating people afterward. It's two poetic ways of speaking of defeating enemies, okay? Jonathan and his armor bearer are defeating these 20 men in the garrison of the Philistines. And you go on and read, and in verse 14, there's this account of the effect of the acts of these faithful men. And the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. Very hard to explain that, but I want to say it's probably about the size of the church here in the courtyard. It's a very large base, okay? 
I know that hectares and acres and all of this just doesn't translate exactly, but it's not a large area. Small area, they killed 20 men, and it was a significant blow. And it had the effect in the camp, verse 15, that there was panic in the, in the field and all the rest of the area where the people were encamped. That whenever they looked and they saw these 20 men fallen at the hand of just two, they trembled and went into uproar. We're told that the earthquakes, this provision of God, and some people say, that's a miracle. I'd say, no, a miracle would be you know, if the earth, you know, bursted into flames and people started to, you know, levitate or something. No, this is the Lord working through the means of His creation. That's, that's a natural thing that the Lord is always controlling. Even as we had an earthquake a few weeks ago here in Stuttgart, the Lord controls it. And in His providence, He brought this to be. These are ordinary means. So an earthquake and two bold, faithful Israelites put the people in the end of verse 15 into a very great panic. Ordinary ways, ordinary methods of the Lord bringing His sovereign will about. Verse 16 we read, At the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin, they looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing. They're looking over on the Philistines and they're saying, hey, something's going on. Maybe the dust is kicking up. But they see people going here and there. and You've got that number. It only makes sense that you would notice if something's happening. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. He's saying, well, if that has happened, maybe some of our people have snuck away and decided to do something. And what do they do? They find Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. This rogue, intrepid, brave, reckless son of Saul has gone and something is happening in the camp of the Philistines. And I love the, uh, the response of, uh, of Saul. In verse uh, 18, he says to Ahijah, the priest, bring the ark of God here. And then we're told in the historical account, again, here's another piece of information for the, the foreign reader, uh, or maybe even the Israelite reader, many years in the future, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. As if we wouldn't already know it. It's a historical piece of narration. Bring that ark here. He's learned a bit of a lesson. Before I go against these Philistines again, we need to check and see if the Lord's in this. That's basically what's behind it. And he says, I'm not going to touch that thing. I think I learned a lesson a little bit. I know it, um, it didn't please the Lord. Ahijah, you do it. You seek the Lord. You do the priestly work. He's learned something. Well, we keep on reading and verse 19, we read that now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult or the uproar, the panic in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And he's looking on and the people are looking on and he's already told the priest, you start praying and you see if the Lord is in this. And what does Saul do? Well, he reaches over to the priest and he simply says, withdraw your hand. It's as if he's saying, we can tell that the Lord is in this. Look, our enemies are running. This is a sign from the Lord. We don't need to break out the umim and the tumim or any of these things to discern the will of God. It's obvious. It's ordinary. If they're running, well, we should take all our weapons and chase them with our sharpened shovels, our pickaxes, and all the other implements from your farm. We should 
pursue the enemies of the people of God. And that's exactly what they do. We read in verse 21 that the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines, that even those people who turned on the people of Israel, even they turned against the Philistines and joined the Israelites against the Philistines. We read in verse 22, Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, that they heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. All the people converge again. And why? Well, it's because they are seeing the hand of their God at work to deliver them through ordinary, regular means, through people who believe in the Lord and are bold enough to act according to His promises. These ordinary things. And so they fight and they chase. And we're told at the end of this section, the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. These people are flushed out away from the people of Israel and there is safety. But it's in verse 23 that the narrator, the writer of 1 Samuel, tells us very clearly something we all need to know. He does not say, and that was the day that we were delivered by the hand of Jonathan, or the great man, the young armor bearer. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that Saul then took after Jonathan and they defended the people of Israel, or that was the great day of the victory of the armies of Israel and glory was on the field. Verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Who did? God did. He is sovereign over all things. Anything that comes to pass is according to His will, His design, His purposes, His kindness, grace, and faithfulness to His people. And so friends, you and I really have to see this as what it is. It is a testimony to the character of our God and His goodness that He does not abandon His people. He didn't to Israel in the face of their enemies and He doesn't for us today. He hears us when we cry out to Him. He expects that we will do the things that we ought to do in faith, that may mean a million different things. That may mean in faith to receive the treatment against the illness. It may mean in faith to walk and to pursue a job, believing that God loves you, yet you can't always see the end of it. Maybe it means that the Lord's calling you to be a missionary. And you think, wow, I don't know what it would be. Lord, I, I don't speak this, that language. I've never been to this or that country. Lord, I don't speak German. Yet, Lord, I believe in you and we're going to follow you. We don't know where we'll live. We don't know how we'll buy food. But we believe that if you're calling us, we will follow. It can mean a number of things. The sovereignty of God touches absolutely every hair on your head, the very depths of your soul and every bite of food you ever eat and every breath of air you take. Here's the thing you need to hear. God is sovereign and he loves his people. And so we can act in faith knowing that He loves us and that He is powerful. Let's pray together. Father, we love You and we thank You for Your Word, Lord, the testimony of Your faithfulness and the acts that You have done throughout history. Lord, we pray that You give us strength like Jonathan, O oh Lord, to know who You are. O oh Lord, to see You in Your power and Your freedom. O oh Lord, and to act believing 
uh, that you will bless your people. Lord, we ask that you bless our church, that, Father, we would uh, be bold like this, that, Lord, uh, the very few of us, uh, our, our small congregation, not even 600, that, Lord, maybe even one or two of us would do great things uh, because we have a sovereign God for you. Oh, Lord, bless your people. Lord, bless humble service, O oh, Father, to your glory. And Lord, help us all to stand in the week ahead. Oh, Lord, help us to pursue you and to be strengthened by your faithful care. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.